This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Among the Amazons. Occult Bulgaria. Cursed Places. And 30s LA Cults. When Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds, his mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, the Big Red God. Goodnight Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The thump of miniatures, the clatter of dice, the rustle of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But in this iteration, it's not Peter Frampton's beneficent countenance that welcomes us. It's Betty Carter singing her heart out. The dice are matching. The Doritos are Cool Ranch, and all the miniatures are thin but adequately dressed for the era because we are in an Amazon edition of the Gaming Hut, thanks to Patreon backer Joan Gordiet, or Joan Gordiet, because he is a Spanish guy, who asks, in English, we created a campaign setting using microscopes some time ago, and one of the features of this world was Amazon society. I wonder how you would tackle this in an interesting way, and what main differences you could foresee from a traditional F20 setting. Also, since the players will probably keep playing male characters, how would that affect them without crippling them? Robin, what are your thoughts, Amazonique? So, I guess that, that last question should be our first question, because I think it gives us a, a way in, which is, if you have a society that is run by warrior women, uh, yet the players are choosing to play men, the question is, what sort of exciting adventure things happen that the warrior women can't or won't do? And often the default idea in a, a role-playing game, especially a fantasy role-playing game, is that you're playing a fantasy of irresponsibility in which uh, you get to do things that other people don't get to do. So that gives us a number of options. You could be the uh, sort of uh, thieves on the margin of society that would put you at odds with the Amazons, which I don't think is quite as much fun as having you be sort of, uh, you know, the uh, the dirty dozen of the Amazon world. That You're the, the group of they don't normally bring up male warriors. The men are supposed to do things in keeping with their, uh, you know, typical masculine quantities like be scribes and scientists and opening jars, opening jars and uh, 
Uh, well, no, you're you're the one who counts all the jars, and then you ask your ask your ask your Amazon lady to open them for you, please. And so, uh, you know, they're the poets and the singers, and uh, uh, but you know, every so often a, a, a man comes along who is better at fighting, which is weird. But you know, the, the Amazons they're they're a tolerant bunch, and they got to find something for you to do. So, what sort of missions do Amazons? not want to go on what is there a curse that they're under where there's a particular enemy that they can't fight are you uh you know the mission impossible squad who are going off doing sort of a deniable mission so as you're you know kind of people that there's no set rule for you how does a highly structured society create a role that makes what you're doing okay without being a, a threat to their power so i would think it would be that kind of uh you know, you're the special missions crew who, uh, you know, you meet with your Amazon boss at the beginning of each mission. Or, you know, also, you're kind of expendable. Yeah. You know, you're not the, uh, you're not rising in the military hierarchy. Uh, you're never going to get to be a general or an admiral. So, uh, you know, oh, there's these weird slimy menaces off in the off in this island and uh well let's before we send anybody important let's send you guys or check out the mountain pass and see if it's still guarded by ogres yes that kind of thing i think that the notion of having the player characters you know give the answer to as male adventurers assuming they are playing males um what are they what did they begin doing in the amazon world before they got put in the dirty dozen or what did they begin doing that got them put in the dirty dozen so one of them might say well i was a I was a, a, a Thracian invader and I was taken and I've been slaving in the silver mines uh, for the Amazons. Or another one might say, I was a griffin wrangler brought from Aramaspia and uh, because of my special understanding of griffins, they couldn't just execute me like they do most foreign men. Um, or I was a beautiful poet and I was too gorgeous for the Amazons to kill or whatever. And then that's all their roles that got them to this spot. So like in A Dirty Dozen, you have a little intro adventure concept, maybe even a little mini adventure that sets them up as part of, but alien to this Amazon society. And then like you say, yes, you pick the sort of crummiest of the Heraclean labors, maybe not clearing out the Aegean stables, but go and hunt all the Stymphalian birds out of that marsh, that kind of thing. Um, you sort of look for adventures that are not necessarily death traps, but are a lot of killing in a relatively small amount of space. And I think that they would send their their team of, of deniable men off to the, actually the deniable men is a pretty great title. Um, send them off to that, uh, that kind of adventure and also infiltrating other courts and doing things for the Amazons so that if they are caught, it's like, well, they're all guys. How can they be working for the Amazons? That's ridiculous. Right. And if being an Amazon is remarkable in this setting, uh, that implies that there are other patriarchal cultures that they have to deal with. And so, uh, if, they need somebody to infiltrate the uh, the He-Man women's haters kingdom. Well, or as we call it, Athens. <laughs> yes, uh, you know you you got to uh, train up some guys who are able to go and and do that, and then you have the, the question of it. You know, you go off and you uh, meet this uh, patriarchal society, and how far over the line do you go in implying that you know you might be a rebel who could possibly be infiltrated? Right. So basically, you know, you're the uh, members of the state security apparatus infiltrating the black bloc, right? You could also be the agents who help the uh, society uh, combat, uh, you know, rebellious cells of men by by posing as, as such. And there's also the idea that you could have opponents who are just taboo, right? That you uh, have sworn an oath uh, never to attack your uh, sisters in the kingdom of the Elven Queen, but uh, hey, wait, they're 
forests are encroaching on your farmland and uh, they're doing all of this uh, uh, stuff, but your power vanishes if, uh, you know, no, no human woman may uh, lay a hand on an elf uh, and uh, continue to use her power. You know, she'll wither and prematurely age. But guess what? Because in this version of the setting, you know, if every culture is a matriarchy, that's where the loopholes are. It's like they didn't think to write uh, into the deal, you know, a male warrior? How could there be such a thing? We don't have to write our agreement so that uh, no man may lay a sword in anger against an elf. So it's like, oh, you're the only guys who can fight the elves. Oh, because you're guys who can fight the elves. Okay, well, I guess we'll have to have a special, you know, uh, elf fighting phalanx. And, uh, you know, you, there might be the political fallout of that. There'd be, uh, you know, a great controversy uh, in the city that they're uh, training men to go fight the elves, even though the elves are eating all over farmland. So you could have you know, the parameters around that. And uh, in that one, it could be that, you know, you are all married to high-ranking Amazonian officers in the in the army. And now all of a sudden you're being given the forbidden magic that makes men able to fight. And you have to decide, you know, how much do you want to get involved in, in you know, nasty old politics when normally you're supposed to be at a remove from such a thing and just um, being around looking handsome and filling out spreadsheets. That might be another possibility. If you're all the husbands of brave Amazon warriors who are out on the front and you are, you know, attending rallies or whatever it is that you do at home, you know, planting olive trees. And then uh, you begin to suspect that there are enemy spies in the Amazon camp. Maybe they're elves, maybe they're Greeks, whoever the Amazons are fighting. And you are the only people who stumbled on them and no one will believe you because you're just men. Ha <laughs> ha. So you have to track down these spies and stop them. And of course they have doughty magics of their own. So you have to use the, the, the skills and abilities that you've been forbidden to learn because you're boys and capture these much better trained spies who are women and are therefore immediately uh, assumed to be correct in any disagreement with you. So it becomes a, you could play a really great game of intrigue and home front spying during the war. Another option is that you're, uh, we sort of touched on this earlier, but rather than being sort of the expendables, you're foreign mercenaries. So that the kingdom of the Amazons, they've, they're in their fourth year of the, with the war with the elves, and uh, they uh, now have to bring in forces from outside because things aren't going so well. And so uh, that enables the players to sort of uh, enter this society afresh and see how it's uh, as as outsiders who get a briefing on what it is. And the question then becomes, do you uh, assimilate with the Amazon society? Are you willing, you, you know, if you fall in love with an Amazon general, are you going to uh, uh, marry her and uh, think, you know, possibly at the end of that, you will, you know, retire to look after the children and set aside your sword? Or, you know, are you just here uh, in the short term to uh, make a few bucks and then uh, get out of there as, as soon as you possibly can, because, you know, you're used to being uh, respected as, as a warrior. And here you're um, considered a freak. You're a, a val an important freak that they desperately need. But as soon as the war ends, uh, what happens to you? Do you want to settle there? Do you want to make as much money as you can and get out? And what are the complexities that are uh, surrounding that? And so um, in that uh, set up, I think you would try and get the members of the group to have different perspectives on that, right? Have one person, uh, have about half the group decide that they want to somehow uh, find a place for themselves among the Amazons because, and they would, you know, each of them come up with the cool reason why that would be, whether it's like, well, they've got the best technology and I'm a gearhead or, uh, you know, I've uh, 
um, fought for many years, and it's time that I uh, settle these weary bones down, and this golden palace uh, looks as good a place as any. And so uh, within the group, there can be sort of a conflict about, you know, to what extent you want to remain apart from this uh, glorious society that you can never fully belong to, and to what extent you want to sort of pry open the, the boundaries and, uh, and squeeze on in and, and have a good life among the Amazons. If you're a standard male unit of adventurers, another possibility is that you're not within the Amazon society, or at least not immediately, but you meet them at a similar, you know, on a battlefield or in a mega dungeon or somewhere like that, where there's lots of different competing groups of adventurers or bands of mercenaries. And you and the Amazons sort of are the best at what you do, or the Amazons are maybe a little better. And so you set up a friendly rivalry where the Amazons and you guys, you know, start looting the same uh, haunted ca- castles or taking down the same giant steadings or whatever. And so you can have every PC has their sort of matching Amazon NPC and maybe they fall in love and maybe they don't, but you build them out as genuine NPC characters. And then of course comes the day when, Oh no, you've taken a contract to fight the blood necromancer and guess who's been hired by the blood necromancer, your old Amazon buddies. And now it's a question of, do you respect the Amazons enough to say, no, let's both join and take down everybody in this stupid war? What do you do? What's your response to that? Add the Amazons as an interesting third force between you and whatever it is that you would normally be stabbing. And then there's uh, also the issue of, you know, the, there may be a, a, a requirement for some level of kind of uh, masculine divine magic in the world in order to keep things balanced. And so, uh, you know, the, the Amazons, a, uh, a generation ago, finally banished all of the uh, the patriarchal gods into uh, you know the, their version of the Phantom Zone. But you can't completely do without that force, or the the world starts to come apart. Or you know you're worried about the return of the repressed. So it may be that you are kind of the uh, the the safe man who each uh, worships the uh, acceptable aspect of one of the destructive male gods, and so that you have to be allowed. Uh, in this case, you're sort of like the the fool. Uh, during uh, a, a a Bacchanal festival where suddenly you're allowed to, you know, the fool is allowed to say bad things about the king. Well, here you're allowed to uh, be representatives of, of male energy, and a certain amount of that has to exist, uh, or, you know, the, the that wall will crumble and, and the bad male gods will come back through. And so that gives you a sort of a, a ritual reason why you're allowed to go around adventuring, because each of you uh, is... A, a priest of one of these important gods, and you've, you're fulfilling uh, this mythic role that keeps everything together, but there's still, you know, a suspicion on what you're doing, and so you have to be very careful to make sure that you're only manifesting the socially acceptable version of the the sea god or the storm god or, or whatever it is for your particular character. And so that could kind of emphasize the ritual mythic side of, of what you're doing and give you uh, free reign to do things and cause trouble as long as it's safe trouble within acceptable limits. That that notion of a ritual component makes me think also that depending on your player group and whether or not they'd go for this, this sort of violates the spirit of the last bit of the question. But let's say that they're brought in, they're recruited to work for the Amazons on whatever pretext, 
and they get more and more power and, and uh, ability. And they're like, yeah, this is great. Awesome. And the Amazons start addressing them as Zeus and Poseidon and, and uh, Hades and the, the various gods who they are the embodiments of. And they're like, oh, good for us. We're, we found a role amongst the Amazons. And then, of course, after a year or after three years, they are to be ritually executed so that the blood of the male pours into Amazon female land. The Amazons can continue reproducing without men. And everyone is a happy person in Amazon country, except for these six stupid men who believe it every time that we tell them they're gods and get sacrificed for their pains. Don't mind these wicker figures that we're building. Right, they're over in on honor the of you. Look how male they are. Yeah, there'll, be a, there'll be a big party. You'll be the center yep. of attention. Uh, it'll be really hot for you. And that could add a, a great uh, final uh, scene or, a, or maybe a graduation scene where you have to, bust out of the Amazon festival slash prison where you are and fight your way across Amazon country to the nearest Greek outpost where patriarchy will take you in because after all, you're, you're men, you're male adventurers, end of the day. And uh, to, to flip that on its head, you could also have uh, that the men are working toward becoming part of the Amazonian military. And that, of course, uh, if you finally manage to prove yourself as a male warrior, that means you're good enough to join. But of course, there's the slight ritual where you have to uh, have your uh, gender swapped. And so, uh, you know, you're uh, basically, you're trying to level up high yeah, enough that you get to be. That's a lovely ending. Uh, well, <laughs> if we've got a lovely ending, we should uh, move uh, through this commercial to our next exciting segment. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Chris Sating journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin. And this time around, Kalan Kadiev asked Ken and Robin, I've been jotting down notes on creating an unknown army's view of Bulgaria and its occult scene. However, I am honestly stumped where to begin looking as far as research goes. So the question is, what books on the occult and general strangeness of the Balkans and Eastern Europe would you point me toward? And I think uh, for those listeners who are not planning to do exactly that, I I think, Ken, you'll also kind of be laying out uh, with this example how to start researching a thing that you don't know a way into. So now I bet you already start out knowing uh, something about 
Bulgaria in Eastern Europe. So do you want to cast us back into the shadows of time into when you uh, first would have started exploring this? I haven't really had any great reason to study Bulgaria. The, I think the most intensely I've looked at Bulgaria was when I was writing up Varna for what turned out not to be the Dracula dossier, but one of the uh, Call of Chicago uh, page XX columns that I do for Pelgrane Press about Varna. And I had to look up Varna and find out what was going on with Varna. And I followed the same procedure there that I give out in the Knights Black Agents core book, which is Google, good old Google, Google News, ideally, but Google generally will do it. Varna plus vampire, Varna plus occult, Varna plus magic, Varna plus weird, Varna plus organized crime. And that gives you results that eventually you can build into uh, several story hooks, a few backdrops, and as it turned out, a pretty effective set of bad guys. There is a group, uh, an organized crime group in, in Bulgaria and Varda called the TIM group, T-I-M. They were originally from the Bulgarian Marines, the Tihina Division, and they are involved in all of your fun organized crime activities, as well as a number of holding companies that control a great deal of, you know, things like oil refineries, agriculture, uh, the mayor, stuff like that. So you begin with a really great, weird, organized crime group. There's another group called the Varna Seals. They were a little freelance group that vigilantes that drove out foreign mafias uh, from Varna. And is that Seals as in like Navy Seals? Like or? as in Navy Seals, I assume. And they may have been working for the Mutri, which is the more conventional Bulgarian mob, or they may have been working for Tim, or Tim and Mutri may be connected in some way. But that's for you to decide, I guess. Tim and Mutri sounds like a series of children's books until you know <laughs> right. what it really means. It's, one of them is a seal. Yes. It's delightful. This is Mutri, my seal. Oh, good, Tim. Maybe you can help us with this vampire problem. Because, of course, um, there are still vampires. There are vampire slayers in Devnia, which is at the other end of Lake Varna. So there's a little group of vampire slayers. That's fun. So basically, the research for Varna is the same as writ large you do for Bulgaria. I do want to help out Colin with a book that I'm very fond of, Thracian Magic, Past and Present, The Folklore and Magical Practices of the Balkan Peninsula by Georgi Mishev. And that's your, your one-stop shop for authentico Bulgarian occult, because Mishev, like many Eastern European scholars, believes that various ancient practices can be drawn forward to his own particular country and that uh, Bulgaria is the heart of ancient Thrace, magically, etc. And so what uh, sorts of, if you're going to have a Thracian magician in an unknown army's uh, campaign as an enemy, what sort of things can you do? Uh, there's all manner of um, uh, magical seer-type practices. There's the bit where you're uh, buried underground and come back up. Uh, that's Zalmoxis, but that's Thracian. We moved him to Romania because there's no proof he wasn't in Romania, and perfectly good Romanian scholars have said he was Romanian. There's various archetypal figures, uh, the Mountain Mother, the Virgin Mistress of Fire, the She-Wolf, the Mother of the Sun. Those all sound like good Unknown Army's avatars to me. So if you're uh, tackling any research in general for a, a campaign uh, that you don't know a lot about, your first thing then is to know your keywords and hit them on Google. Is there uh, a... Uh, assuming an unlimited uh, uh, budget for uh, for books, how do you uh, know which books you decide to order about uh, Bulgaria and which ones are, are worth it or not? Or is it uh, worth the trouble usually? You know, let's say that, that as part of a, a, a Kickstarter level, $40,000, you agree to write a Bulgarian supplement 
or uh, well, let's say Knights Black Agents in this instance, because uh, probably that won't happen for unknown armies. Yeah. They would go to uh, John Tynes or somebody for that. So how do you start assembling your, your material in order to, to get a grip on, on stuff? Well, I mean, one of the things about Unknown Armies specifically is that it's very much anchored in the quotidian. The classy old school magic is generally honored in the breach, not the observance. And so Colin lives in Bulgaria, so he probably knows way more about weird stuff in Bulgaria than I do, even if I read blogs by Bulgarian expats or do anything to try and familiarize myself with it. I mean, my normal first shot is get the Lonely Planet guide to the country and find out all the stuff that sort of seems hinky. Again, he lives there. He knows all about the hinky of Bulgaria. But he, what he doesn't know is the weird stuff. He doesn't know the occult part. Yeah, but but the occult part is stuff that you take the hinky and you make it occult because Unknown Armies is about the presence of the occult in every kind of social dysfunction, not just, not just your traditional um, weirdness. Right, so the technique there is to look for something normal that nonetheless has some sort of keyword in it that makes it sound like something weird. And if you have enough weird keywords in uh, circling your head, and of course we, we do in this instance, you can then go from that to, oh, well, this, uh, uh, you know, there's an Egyptian obelisk in this particular town. Oh, well, that's an unusual thing to be in a town in Bulgaria. And then you can go from that to, you know, figuring out, oh, well, why would Didacris be in Bulgaria and start to combine the basically you're, you're nerd tripping right the world particularly when you're doing unknown armies right you're searching for little things to pull out and so it's not about uh, obviously attempting to be real uh, if you're playing in Bulgaria with Bulgarian players you don't need to convince them that Bulgaria exists you need to convince them that their ordinary reality has something um, bizarre about it. There is, in fact, a Roman obelisk in Bulgaria, in Lestri, wherever that is. I guess central Bulgaria. That's that's my guess, based on the theory that most things are central. So it may not be Nitocris, but it's a uh, it's a Roman obelisk. It has a legend attached to it that is not Roman. It's called the Stone of Marco. The strongest man in Bulgarian magic land fell in love, and whoever could build the tallest pillar would get to marry her. Guess what? He built the tallest pillar. She, having not foreseen the consequences of challenging Marco to a feat of pillar building, still picked the other guy. He got mad and um, uh, smashed the other obelisk and went away. So that's to explain the fact that there was rumors of another obelisk there. Right. And, and the ob well. obelisk now is in a, a maze field. It wouldn't have been maze to begin with, obviously, because corn uh, uh, is fairly uh, recent in Europe. But that uh, the idea of, okay, there's an agricultural element. There's a giant phallic symbol, and uh, but here there's a a myth about the whole phallic ritual goes wrong, everything goes astray, that the marriage doesn't occur, and um, somebody else's uh, giant phallic symbol uh, got uh, de-erected, and so in there you can find okay, well, what's some obviously something weird has happened to the fertility magic in this area, and that is something that you can then uh, start to wrap uh, something that works in that uh, plot line. So in unknown armies. The idea of, you know, sabotaged uh, agricultural fertility, you know, there's a magic that you can strive to, to undo or to uh, channel for your own ends. You know, you can be an, an anti-fertility mag magician and, and uh, do what you want with that. In the context of Knights Black Agents, that could then become something that is, uh, well, you know, 
what what do vampires do? Well, of course, they drain the fertility from uh, people and therefore by extension from the land. And the so, obelisk could be one of those stone vampires mentioned in the core book, or it could be the giant stone stake through the heart of a super powerful vampire that as it is now falling apart, the vampire is coming back to life. Who can say? So I, I think what we're getting at is that if there's a, a subject that is that, that eludes you, that there isn't automatically a, a shelf full of books that jumps into your lap, that what you basically are doing is nerd trope free association, that you're looking for just enough right. to then plug into your uh, collection of uh, basic um, mythic or fantastical or supernatural ideas. And then uh, once you start spinning things out, everything else starts to look like something that has to do with a, a, a fertility ritual gone wrong. So you can uh, look up this town and you say, oh, well, look, all the all the gas stations have gone out of business. Uh, why would that be? Well, obviously, there's, you know, an energy vampire as well. It's been leaching all of the jewels of energy out of the gasoline. And so if you uh, now we have to, oh, well, wait a minute, what what's happening with the whole energy infrastructure? And so it doesn't necessarily have to be something that seems really real and relevant to begin with, but rather just something that sparks a kooky idea that then you can envision the player characters uh, getting mixed up in. And so, you know, you go from, oh, yeah, boring old obelisk. Oh, okay, the myth is kind of weird. And now all of a sudden, what, we're fighting gas vampires? And then, oh, okay, uh, Eastern Europe, gas. Oh, wait a minute, what about uh, uh, Gazprom in Russia? Are they uh, threatened by the fact that there are uh, energy-sucking vampires nearby in Bulgaria? You bet they are. And so from there, you can start to, uh, you know, create a web of kookiness. And, and even if, you know, once you get three or four levels out on the web, it's super kooky. Well, that's unknown armies for you. Yep. Um, and it's uh, it's directed free association, right? You're directing it toward the notion of obsessed magic and weird paradox and strange, pointless conspiracies that have no reason to exist. And again, this may be something that Colin's like, man, I've noticed that there's a lot of people who keep ferrets here in, in Bulgaria compared to other countries. Maybe there's a ferret cult. Uh, when I was running unknown armies set in Chicago, one of our myths is the sort of predatory uh, city towing authorities. So I created a magical towing conspiracy because that's something that <laughs> resonates with Chicago, but it's not something you'd find out in a book about occult Chicago. You just have to live in Chicago enough to know that if you say there's something occult about the towing, everyone says, oh yeah, sure there is. And that's the thing you say in, in my home of Sofia or Varna or wherever in Bulgaria, if I say, yeah, I think there's something up with all of these, you know, chaffinches. Everyone's like, yep, there sure is, or whatever it is, right? I don't know because I don't live there. But if you live there, there are things about your hometown that strike you as, I guess what I want to say is conventionally weird. They're the things that everyone knows is not normal, but no one thinks is actually weird. But if you said it was weird, you'd say, oh, yeah, that makes more sense. People here drink Malort. That's peculiar. I wonder... Wonder what the yeah, mythic explanation seems, for that, that is. That seems like something strange. Well, they're they're placating the the wormwood spirit. Uh, well, as soon as uh, there are wormwood spirits showing up, uh, that's another cue for us to head to another segment.
Hey Ken, what happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Urs Blumentritt. Wayne Peterson. Brian Thomas. Jason Franzella. And Neil Dalton. Every Tuesday morning, Ken and I uh, drop a text feature, uh, which exists due to the largesse of our Patreon backers, and that, of course, is Ken and Robin Consume Media. And then our backers comment on that feature on our Patreon site. And if a groundswell, if a stirring, if it's a source of demand arises, that then coalesces and becomes an audio segment here on the podcast called Tell Me More. And this time, Tell Me More is produced in conjunction with the cartography hut, that most neglected of huts, since it often deals with uh, visual material, maps and places and, and geography and so forth. It makes it a little difficult to talk about sometimes. But this is a perfect time to get another cartography hut in the can, because this time around, people around the old Patreon campfire wanted to know more about an atlas of cursed places that you reviewed, Ken. Now, you found the book itself merely okay, but I guess the cursed places themselves are probably uh, more than okay, or rather cursed. So, uh, Ken, what does it take for a, a place to be cursed uh, rather than just sort of a, a bad place in general? I think for the um, uh, for the author, a cursed place has to seem like there's sort of a bigger than bad luck to it. And there's, you know, things where it looks like all the screwing has been done by people, and there's things where it just makes no sense that such and such a place would would ha- have that. And then there's places that it seems like no place could have this, that there can't be an underground coal fire that's been burning for a 100 years. That's silly. But in fact, there are such places. So these places are not all cursed in the sense of being magically cursed, but rather cursed in the sense that the uh, Cursed Images uh, Twitter account, uh, there are just various mundane uh, photos that are uh, quite disturbing out of context. And so there, you know, a uh, an underground coal fire. There's nothing unnatural about that, but there is uh, certainly a, an omen of doom hanging over it. Right. So, if you want to uh, sort of arbitrarily or uh, in order of uh, things that interest you, uh, talk about some of those cursed places, and we'll uh, see what we can, what scenario hooks we can riff around them. Um, one of the nice things about the modern era is that if you hear something that's exciting, even if the book itself is kind of eh. You can look it up on your Wikipedias and your internets and find many more facts. One of my favorites of the cursed places in here is 
the haunted cemetery or the forbidden cemetery of Stoll, Kansas, which is one of the many gates to hell that you will read about in American uh, sort of folk tradition. And uh, so what is it about uh, this particular cemetery that makes it a, a gate to hell? There's a cemetery in it, so that's a start yep, with an abandoned bad, but, church. But, but common, relatively common. Yes, re- relatively common. They have an abandoned church, which makes it look even satanier. Right, right. If you can't have an abandoned church in a small town without there being rumors of uh, satanic activity, which probably means uh, kids getting drunk and having to spray paint with them. Right. Um, there was a uh, mysterious hanging at the turn of the century, which, given America at the turn of the century, was probably not all that mysterious. There's, you know, been a mysterious death of a child in a fire. Nothing really special, but for right, some reason... Basically, any small community uh, needs to have some... I guess this is how cursed places come to be, right? There's sort of a psychic need that people have in order to ascribe badness to a place. And uh, I think particularly uh, in, uh, you know, a sparse place like Kansas, there's a lot of bleakness, and so you sort of... Uh, mythically attach it to that location. And so this brings us to, you know, if we're looking for a, a story hook, is that uh, if, for example, if you're running an esoteric game, the idea there is that the human servitors of the, the demonic beings of the outer dark are always looking for places where the membrane is thin. And if there's a, just a series of bad incidents that surround a place, that's where it'll be easier for you to draw the creatures out. And, of course, that is self-reinforcing, right? If in 1930, a bunch of esoteric showed up and drew some, uh, you know, blood bean creatures through uh, through the portal and somebody got killed, well, that's going to increase uh, in everybody's kind of ancestral memory, even if they don't really recall the weirdo details of that incident, that there's going to be even more reason to think that place is cursed. And so if you're, a, uh, you know, supernatural uh, busting agents who come to town... Uh, the first thing you do is say, well, are there any cursed places nearby? The cemetery is, is cursed, according to the lore. Look, here's this um, newspaper article from 1930. So this can be this can be sort of an investigative hook that's sort of a standard thing. You arrive in town, you know there's something weird happening, you don't know what it is. After you talk to your first witnesses, the next thing you do is you hit the research and you go, oh, there's a cursed cemetery. Let's head out there. And guess what? There's something at the, at the cemetery to find. Do you have another interesting cursed place to look at? I do. The, the Atlas of Cursed Places does a um, sort of it, – it, it moves between the fairly well-known stuff and the, and the stuff that the guy himself made up or uh, found. One of the more well-known places is the suicide forest in Japan, Aokigahara, which is so well-known that it was in a James Bond novel. Yes, and there's a recent uh, movie about that that, was, uh, that I watched 20 minutes of before I <laughs> <laughs> abandoned ship. There is, uh, you know, the Bermuda Triangle, of all things. But uh, I prefer, in your mysterious islandy things, Sable Island, which I believe is also Canadian, Robin. And it's an island that is so crummy in that it is low and ill-shaped and sits in the path of a lot of storms. And so you wind up running aground on it a lot. It, it wrecks boats, like, on purpose. Yeah, it's this little sliver of land. Yeah. Uh, it's 300 kilometers uh, southeast of Halifax, Nova Scotia. And so... The idea that this is, uh, again, it can, a cursed place, if you're going to make it interesting in a role-playing game, has to be some sort of magnet for activity, right? That the fact that, oh, there's lots of shipwrecks here is uh, a starting point, but it's not quite enough. You have to have the idea that the, the island or something about the island draws ships toward it to be 
destroyed. And so what does it do in a modern day horror game? Well, there aren't, you know, it's not interested in ships anymore. That's kind of old timey, but maybe it draws people there in order to be uh, destroyed. And um, maybe there's nothing overtly supernatural about what happens there, but all of a sudden now the weird island has a lot of murders on it. And so uh, an interesting, uh, I think, twist on the uh, sort of slasher kind of movie is that you uh, are a private detective or, you know, whatever group of problem solvers the characters are, and you know that supernatural things exist in the world and you're uh, hired or told that, oh, there's this group of uh, uh, kids headed out for the island, and unless you go and, and stop them, uh, they will eventually go all Lord of the Flies and start uh, murdering each other. And you get out there and you find that uh, the, uh, the the kids went home. They, they had a bad feeling. Uh, they they uh, realized that the island was not a safe place. They're very attuned. And now you're on the island and all of a sudden your means of getting to the island fail on you. And I think the creepiest way, it's just your boat's gone. And then... Uh, that gives you to your your sort of survival horror on this uh, nasty, isolated place, which you were then faced with the challenge, if it's completely bleak, of making interesting enough to have enough sort of scenic variation as you try to uh, break the curse that is, says, oh, you're on the island now, and you're, you belong to be the island unless you can get off. And so the, the mystery is figuring out how to, how to break its hold and to uh, get safely off the island. Because after all, those kids did it, or did they? Plus, the uh, island is hungry because now with GPS, people sail onto it less often than they did. They can just look at the GPS, and there will be a little signal that says, you're getting too close to Sable Island, steer away. So, back in the day, it used to be able to take whole steamships full of people, and now it can barely take anybody. So, since it's yeah, a Canadian National Park... Yeah, you're using Apple Maps can it, to kind of draw right, now. Yes, but now that it's a Canadian National Park, it can start becoming a, uh, a a haunted forest tulpa instead of a, a boat-eating tulpa, I guess. Okay, you want to hit me with uh, one more curse place? I will hit you with one more curse place. try and riff a story hook around it. Try and riff. Jatinga. Jatinga is in India, and it is the plague of birds. Thousands of birds fly to Jatinga and die. Clouds of birds. Um, and then, if they don't finish killing themselves by smashing into the uh, village, the locals will kill them with sticks, because the locals are not going to turn down delicious bird food. Some ornithologists blame the villagers for just setting up big lights in a bird migratory pattern so that they can get delicious bird food, but when they set up lights in other areas, they can't attract the birds to them. So there's something about Jatinga that makes birds uh, fly to their doom. So this implies some sort of uh, magnetic mechanism that is messing with their uh, migratory patterns. That there is, uh, you know, again, uh, we don't want to go too close to what we did before, which offers an interesting challenge. Since the temptation is to go, well, there's a there's a hunger spirit that is drawing things uh, uh, toward it. Uh, but it might be that the uh, uh, the birds themselves know that they must do this. Uh, because they are, uh, you know, haunted by this, uh, by the specter of death. And if not enough birds kill themselves at Jatinga in any given year, the spirit of death will, uh, attack birds throughout the world. That they, uh, that these are basically the hero kamikaze birds who are performing a self-sacrifice on behalf of all of the rest of, of bird kind. And then, uh, as you get there and start to realize this, it's like, oh, well, okay, well, this is some big planet-smashing catastrophe that's now in the way because this year, no birds showed up. 
And so that gives you the investigation. Well, who stopped the birds from coming? Who's trying to destroy the world with a, uh, you know, is it going to be a, a volcanic event like the one that created one of the great mass extinctions? Or is there a meteor on the way? Or is it just, uh, you know, accelerating climate change? Any of these things could uh, start creating this catastrophe, you know, and it's not enough now to round up a bunch of birds and throw them at Chitinga. They didn't show up. And so to either find whoever it was who stopped the birds from coming, whoever uh, worked whatever magic it was and, and stopped them so that at least next year the birds will show up and maybe that'll be enough. Or you have to, you know, maybe it's too late for that and the volcano is awakened or the meteor is on the way and operating in the mythic sphere, you have to figure out uh, the, uh, the sacrifice, uh, which will probably be a really bad one because this first one was missed. Maybe, maybe birds aren't good enough. Maybe you need people this time. And the means of uh, uh, preventing this catastrophe from occurring, and of course the force that wants the catastrophe to occur, is still out there and is going to mess with you. And indeed, the number of birds dying at Jatinga has been tapering off. Uh, not just because the locals have become uh, more aware of killing all the birds is a bad idea, but also because fewer birds have been showing up. So perhaps the danger is already upon us. I do want to mention that among the birds is the black drongo. So if you're looking for an excuse to say black drongo, this would be it. <laughs> and, and who among us isn't? And who among us isn't? There are other death bird areas, but they're less well known. Um, in Mizoram province, which is also in India, uh, in the Philippines, in Malaysia. So the, the death birds have got a backup if it right. comes to that. But I take it that there is a ongoing problem here, uh, with, uh, the bird spirits. The, uh, the, uh, locals used to think that it was the, uh, demons coming after them. And that's why they would kill them. And who's to say it wasn't? Right. But, uh, you know, maybe the demons are no longer in the birds and, uh, uh, now it's a bad thing to become birds. So that's right. uh, another avenue that you could explore. So anyway, that's a bunch of, that sort of gives us the qualities of, um, cursed places. They tend to be uh, deserted. There's something weird or irrational about them. And there's something associated with death or decay or just general bleakness. And so you can use that to uh, build your own cursed place or to research an existing cursed place and wrap a story around it. And once we've done that, it's time to declare victory and move on to our final segment. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker-killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! Once more, we set foot on the curving staircase past the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and into the comfortable study of the consulting occultist. The consulting occultist, however, this time is holding forth 
on the many varieties of Toronto beer. It is the consulting Canadian occultist, but he's talking about the American occult. Only the consulting occultist can untangle this mess. Robin, help us out here. So we're talking about the, the cults and cultists of 1930s LA. So uh, once again, uh, we're uh, talking about something that I researched for Cthulhu Confidential, which is the uh, gumshoe one-to-one game that uh, should be headed uh, to a store near you quite soon. And uh, I thought we'd uh, continue to wet people's uh, whistle for that by uh, looking at the way that L.A., uh, speaking of things being magnets for other things, uh, uh, Los Angeles was sort of a, uh, a sleepy uh, kind of uh, farming uh, town where the, the old money people had, uh, had land and orange groves uh, around 1900, and all of a sudden uh, oil is discovered, and then a little while later uh, it becomes the focus of the American film industry, and all of a sudden uh, this little uh, burg where all of these... Uh, uh, stuffy patricians uh, run things with an iron fist and possibly the odd pickaxe handle. Um, now there's a big influx of people coming in uh, in the 20s, and uh, and we all know. Uh, and when they arrive, they're they're quite often from the Midwest. There's a lot of people, who, and from also the the sort of Mountain West. And there's a lot of people from Oklahoma and from uh, Indiana and so forth. And they uh, leave their comfortable safe Presbyterian and Methodist lives and they arrive in crazy town. And once you're in crazy town and money is flowing and people don't know who they are anymore, well, who springs up to take advantage of that? But people offering spiritual awareness. And uh, there's certainly lots of uh, kind of mainline uh, church leaders who are important during this period as well. Uh, the Catholic Church has a lot of influence over the uh, Mexican and Mexican-American community, although, of course, it's run by the Irish because it's the 30s. Uh, but uh, if you have a little bit of money in your pocket and you want to find out who you really are in a cosmic sense, there's all sorts of people in L.A. who, in exchange for a, a small or perhaps sometimes exorbitant fee, will tell you all of the secrets. And so your uh, one-to-one character, who might be Dex Raymond, the hardball detective, might find himself uh, dealing uh, with any number of them. Some might be fictional or some might be real. So, uh, for example... Uh, I think we've talked about him before in the podcast. Uh, one of the uh, main exponents of the occult in L.A. in 1937 is, uh, speaking of Canadians, uh, Manly Palmer Hall. One of the is, great uh, occultists of all time. Yes, and he looks very manly indeed at this point in 1936. And he is he's only 36 years old, but he's already famous. He's uh, published this book called Secret Teachings of All Ages, and it's a lavish color edition. It has this real sort of coffee table vibe to it and he just sells these like crazy well it's a beautiful tome everyone should own one and uh lots of people in the 30s thought so and bought one and he was then able to build the uh, headquarters of the philosophical research society which is his organization and he got robert stacy judd to design it and uh that's a name as an architecture fan that I'm sure you reckon with. Yes. He is uh, inspired by uh, Mayan architecture. And so Judd uh, builds a number of Mayan structures in L.A. in this period. And so uh, your hardball detective can go hang around uh, uh, cool Mayan buildings. And so the exterior of this place looks both ancient and modern. And inside is this beautiful uh, womb-like wooden library. And so Hall is probably somebody who you consult for information if you're... Uh, a uh, fortune teller occultist contact uh, doesn't quite have a fact. You could go to talk to Hall. He's probably, he seems more, more of a, a good guy. But you could also weave in the fact that, uh, you know, behind the scenes, he's got marital troubles that he's trying to keep on the down low. And that could be 
a, a red herring in your uh, in your case. He also uh, consults with Hollywood. Yes. He wrote a treatment for uh, a, a sequel to Dracula, which sadly was never filmed. And he wrote uh, the story for the film When You Were You Born, 1938 movie, that it's a murder mystery that uses astrology as the plot twist. So um, uh, it's uh, starring, well, starring maybe the wrong word, but Anime Wong plays the astrologer, and that is the biggest name on the on the bill. So right there, 1938, occult murder mysteries. Manley Hall is right there in the middle. So if your if your character or characters need to find a consultant, they will be pointed at Manley Hall, even if their own occult score does not point them there. Now, of course, uh, he's not the only. Occultist with a, a Hollywood connection. Oh, goodness, no. Uh, so this brings us to uh, Wilfred Talbot Smith, who is the turbaned uh, guru at the head of the local Ordo Templar or Orientis outfit, the Agape Lodge. So the, he's a thelemite. And uh, Alistair Crowley uh, thinks that Smith is, of course, his subordinate and will therefore respond to uh, demands for money sent to him by post. But weirdly, Smith doesn't uh, particularly respond to those very often. Seems weird. Yeah, it's like he uh, he has a taste in, in gurus. And he runs the, the lodge in conjunction with a uh, silent screen actress named Jane Wolfe, uh, who is like 62 at this point. And uh, she's not a, a big star, but she was second on the call sheet next to Mary Pickford in Rebecca Sunnybrook Farm. And uh, so... Uh, Smith and Wolf uh, keep it strictly platonic, except during the sex uh, rituals, because of course that's a totally different thing. And so, uh, if there's an occult mystery to be, to be dealt with, of course uh, it's easy enough to get your detective headed on over to the uh, to the Agape Lodge, and uh, you know we have the address for that and so forth. And uh, but there's also uh, other Hollywood hangers on there, including uh, John Carradine, who will later go on to become a horror icon. So you can have. He might either do a, a cool little cameo there and just mention him, or, uh, you know, it can turn out that uh, he may learn something more about uh, vampires than uh, than you might have expected. And maybe that's what's behind his uh, his later performances when he goes on to uh, battle Billy the Kid and so forth. <laughs> and so forth. Uh, this is a little too early, sadly, for Jack Parsons, who doesn't show up in the Agape Lodge until 1940. Yes, he's around in the setting. Uh, you can, he's a, he's a hardcore Marxist sending off rockets, uh, yes. off, off in a gulch, uh, under, uh, the auspices of, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the, the scientific university. Caltech. Caltech. Um, and so, uh, he's, he's there and you can interact with him, but he's not yet, uh, he's not yet taken over the, uh, the local OTO. Right. And if you're in Hollywood, you've got to have a bit of a showbiz cast to what you're doing. And so that brings us to the, uh, performances of a guy at Edna Ballard. Uh, he's also known as Godfrey Ray King, as is a nom de plume. And he promulgates the I am activity. And uh, this is a spiritual esoteric movement that still exists. In fact, yes, a, it does. a new storefront for the I am activity just opened up like a year or so ago within walking distance of my house. So it's, it's still a thing. But what I gather is that it's not as exotic a thing as it was at the time, because uh, he had a book called Unveiled Mysteries. Uh, we talked about Mount Shasta before. He went to Mount Shasta, and uh, he met uh, St. Germain, uh, just as St. Germain was materializing on Mount Shasta. And, that, and if you're going to meet St. Germain, meet him while he's materializing and is slightly uh, disoriented. Still giddy. Yeah, and then because then Germain might just feel that his wafer 
of uh, electronic essence that he just happens to have on him. Oh, hey, would you like an wafer of electronic essence? And can, if you're on Mount Shasta and you run into St. Germain and he offers you an electronic essence wafer, you, you try it out, right? You say yes. You say yes. And uh, what he learned from, from this, of course, was the very original thought that uh, uh, there's a universal Godhead within all of us and there's godlike ascended masters who transcend life and death. And uh, you can uh, manipulate the universe's twin forces. And we all know what the twin forces of the universe are. <laughs> um, wafers and nougat. Energy and wealth. Energy and Weirdly, wealth. money wealth. is one of the things that you can learn to magically manipulate through the original IM activity. Well, that's handy. And so, uh, now, they know a little bit about manipulating the wealth essence. So, uh, you can give them love offerings. And uh, or buy merchandise from them, at, uh, yes. so you can buy like. Mythic. But they do not require tithes, right? It's just out of the goodness of your heart. Exactly. Well, you can buy uh, like a mystical cold cream, for example. Sure, and you can. So that's value for money. You're getting something. Right. You're getting something. It's mystical. Yeah. And cold cream. Uh, Ballard himself has a sort of performative aspect to what he's doing, and so he's, he practices his sort of unfocused uh, stare, and uh, he his resemblance in affect. And, uh, and makeup to Bela Lugosi is not entirely coincidental. And, uh, he, uh, they buy regular radio time. And at this point, they claim a million followers across the U.S. So, uh, there's another cool, fun, uh, group that I think of, of all of them sort of, uh, captures the, uh, commercial spirit of, uh, yes. of, uh, esoteric wisdom. And I'm sure St. Jane, I'm sure St. Germain would have, uh, totally approved and perhaps, was even getting a cut. And there is still a St. Germain, um, an I am temple in Chicago that I used to walk by every time I went to work back when I had to go elsewhere for work. Yes. Now, if I understand correctly, the mystical cold creams are not so much part of it anymore. But, Probably uh, less so. But this, this is why we set things in the 30s. Cool stuff. And uh, Guy Ballard dies in uh, 1939 on uh, December 29th. And uh, uh, he ascended. On uh, December 31st, according to his wife, they had a special rule that said that, uh, turns out you can ascend spiritually, not physically, if you're an ascended master, because he didn't ascend. So you just redefine ascension. Everything's cool again. Uh, well, you know, we're always getting more information as, as we uh, That's right. plumb the esoteric mystery. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to get wafers from St. Germain. You could just read the Bible like a boring person. Now, uh, we come to... Uh a person named Art Bell who had a bunch of crazy theories and then disappeared. <laughs> or Arthur Bell, as he was known. Uh, he was the uh, leader of the anti-war uh, movement Mankind United. And he lived on the Sunset Strip. And uh, he had a, a splendid digs there. Uh, and uh, because, of course, uh, you know, if, if you have a guru, you got to keep him in, in splendor. Ideally. Uh, yeah. And so he sort of has kind of the, an inverse version of that sort of theosophical mythology, or at least one with good guys and bad guys. So there's the hidden rulers. So they're not hidden masters. They're the hidden rulers. They're still good guys. They're called the sponsors. Uh, and they plan to rescue mankind from drudgery because uh, the sponsors think that we just work too hard, uh, which I think looking at uh, America 1930s, I think any benevolent being would come to that conclusion. Yeah. So he sort of had a mystical Kickstarter campaign. And as soon as he got a certain number of people signed up to the cult registry, that would mean that the sponsors would step in. There would be an inbreak of magical power into the world. And 
uh, suddenly we would have a four-hour workday. Yeah. So, so basically, you would go to working on like a Simon Rogers schedule. <laughs> yeah. uh, fundamentally, yes. Now, uh, weirdly enough, he was also uh, he was both captivating uh, as a speaker and paranoid, which I'm not familiar with that in in, in any other historical figure. It, it happens every now and again. You'll get people who are out at the out at the odd ends of things that become captivating yet paranoid. Right. So if you know that the hidden the hidden rulers are trying to uh, to knock you off. Uh, you have to come up with a, a defense against that. So uh, he had, or he said he had, which means, of course, he had. He wouldn't lie about a thing like this. He had seven doubles who would divert their attacks. Uh, and so uh, I guess he was only he was expecting to be attacked no more than seven times. But the main thing uh, about him, unlike a lot of these other figures, is that he came to the uh, attention of the uh, federal authorities uh, undoubtedly due to the intervention of the hidden rulers because of your hidden rulers. And not just because it was selling something to attach to your radio so you could continue hearing his broadcast when the hidden rulers try and prevent it. Right. But after Pearl Harbor, uh, having a uh, overtly pacifist cult seemed like a bad thing. And in uh, in 1951, uh, there were all of these uh, lawsuits closing in on him. He faced legal trouble uh, throughout the war and afterwards and uh, seemed... Uh, like a, just a garden variety subversive to the to the feds, and uh, he disappeared in 1951, never to be seen again. And so, uh, if you want to advance the timeline of Cthulhu Confidential to 1951, you could uh, make that the uh, core of a mystery. But of course, maybe in 1937, you're investigating the death of one of his seven doubles, and uh, that will lead you uh, to find out who the hidden rulers are. And since it's called Cthulhu Confidential. Uh, rather than say Tarzan confidential, uh, you kind of maybe have an idea. Maybe have a guess. That might be. Although, given that he had a seeing eye strapped to his arm, that when he would activate it, he could sus- create a suspended animation in others, I think we know how he disappeared. That's cheating almost. Having yeah. a suspended animation eye. Right. Although one suspects that if he'd you know, really wanted to stop World War II, he could have done that with his seeing eye arm thing. Uh, well, you'd have to go around a lot of places and yeah, suspend him. But he's got seven doubles. He can go anywhere in the world in three hours. Do they Do they all have uh, seeing eye things? Or do, I don't know. Those ones are probably fake, right? If he gives them all his magic talisman, then one of them can bump him off and become him. You don't want that. Maybe that's what happened. That's that's, that's bad paranoia there. That's yeah. too trusting. And, and not bad paranoia as in serious paranoia, but... Ineffective paranoia. Ineffective paranoia. Yeah. <laughs> Useless paranoia. Um, so those were the uh, the cult leaders that I uh, chose to highlight in the book. But, of course, there are many more. And you uh, can uh, create your own sort of based on those. Or uh, And there are, like, some cool references to uh, other cults that I was unable to track down more than one little uh, reference to. But that's more than enough to keep you going for a whole bunch of uh, adventures in L.A. in 1937. Uh, did I leave anything out? Um, I think that you hit the highlights. Certainly there are, as you intimated, there's always more to dig under, but that should keep everyone going for now. I do encourage you to look into the I am activity, which spawns not just eventually the fascist silver shirts, but also the church universal triumphant, which are very excitingly strange. Yes. And uh, when you play the first adventure in uh, the next Raymond adventure, the silver shirts just might be one of the people you go out and uh, perhaps ask some questions of. Perhaps. Uh, and, uh, and on that hinting uh, note of uh, self-promotion, I guess it's time to declare yet another podcast over. So, uh, Ken, go and uh, go into the healing hut. I will. Uh, rest that, that flu-ravaged voice of yours, and uh, we'll be back 
uh, all, all perky and ready and silver-toned, though not silver-shirted. That would be bad. That would be wrong. For our uh, next episode next week. So see you all then, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pograin Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Join such deep researchers as... Oren Geshuri. Paul Richmond. Rafe Ball. Richard August. And Richard Ruane. Snag Canon Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>